Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, September 15th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Concerns continue to grow over how artificial intelligence may impact authors and creators, Andrew. This week, another set of authors filed another class action lawsuit claiming unauthorized use of copyrighted works to train AI systems. Yeah, another set of headlines too, right? Another headline grabbing uh, artificial intelligence based lawsuit. As we learned this week, another group of authors, uh, this time including best selling author Michael Chabin, as well as David Henry Wang, Matthew Clam. Rachel Louise Snyder and ILA Waldman have filed yet another potential class action copyright infringement lawsuit, two actually, one against AI pioneer OpenAI and one against Meta. And they make claims that are pretty much identical to the claims that were made in two previous suits, which we discussed on the show back in July. Essentially, uh, the new lawsuits claim that these, all of the lawsuits, in fact, claim that these uh, emerging AI services use unauthorized copies. Uh, to train their AI models, including copies of these authors' books that were allegedly scraped from notorious pirate sites. Now, I find these suits to be just super fascinating, if probably doomed in court, but fascinating because they make some very novel, but I think very interesting and important claims. Basically, the charge here is that the reason that ChatGPT and other services can generate a work of its own and the writing style of a certain author or can you know accurately or not very accurately as the case may be summarize a certain copyrighted work is that it because you know it copied those books as part of its training data and that that training is illegal because at no point did the plaintiff's authorizer get payment for the use of that work in creating this this model and what's interesting to me is that there isn't a traditional copyright claim here. Like, for example, the one we saw in the recent Internet Archive case where there is an illegal distribution of a work taking place. There's really no evidence that the output of these AI uh, engines is infringing. The claim, the central fear here, is that by using these works to train AI, that the AI is essentially going to rise up and do what these authors do, right? do what these writers do, take their jobs away. Uh, like the previous suits, the latest lawsuit from Michael Chabin and, and his group seeks damages and injunctive relief. It puts forth six causes of action. Let me see. There's direct copyright infringement, vicarious copyright infringement, uh, DMCA violation for the removal of copyright management information, uh, violations of California's unfair competition law, negligence, and unjust enrichment. Now, on that front, on all of these different charges, there's a little news to catch up on. Because in an August 28th filing, lawyers for OpenAI moved to dismiss five of these six causes of action that were lodged in previous suits against OpenAI, uh, citing various deficiencies. Everything essentially but the direct infringement claims have been moved for dismissal, which, you know, I think the direct infringement claim these companies are probably happy to litigate and be done with. But the other claims they say are deficient and should be tossed. Uh, there's just no way they can succeed. Now, Notably, the lawyer for OpenAI is Joe Gratz, who defended the Internet Archive in the recent suit filed by publishers over the scanning and library books. Lawyers you've interviewed since the first such cases were filed, Andrew, tell you they think the plaintiffs won't succeed. And why? 
Yeah. And I have to say, I've talked to and heard from a lot of lawyers on this, and they all agree to everyone, to, to a person, that these cases really face long odds. Even if the author suits manage to get past the threshold issues associated with the alleged illegal copying at issue here and how the AI training actually works, and that's no sure thing, lawyers say there's just too much case law to suggest fair use here. Uh, most commonly, I hear, you know, cases cited, including the case against plagiarism detector turnitin.com, which held that works could be ingested to create a database to expose plagiarism by students. There's the landmark Kelly versus Arebasoft case, and that held that reproduction display of photos as thumbnails was a fair use. And of course, in the publishing industry's own backyard, we have the landmark Google Books case. Uh, I hear from lawyers that there's just too much established case law to support the kind of transformative fair use that artificial intelligence uh, purports to be. And, you know, I think we got more evidence of that in July when a federal judge, uh, William Oreck, suggested that he was leaning toward dismissing similar copyright claims filed against AI companies by a group of artists. And at the time, Art News observed that Oreck's reaction to the suit, and I'll, I'll quote them here, Oreck's reaction to the suit appears to confirm legal and technology analysts' assessment that current copyright law is not equipped to address the potential injustices engendered by AI. You know, that said, I still think these suits are interesting and important because they at least raise awareness of the threats to creators posed by AI, even if copyright may not be the perfect tool to solve this puzzle. And, you know, I'll just refer back to what James Grimmelman told me in July. Uh, you can read that story on the PW site because copyright enables us to ask some important questions. The most basic question here being, of course, how do we protect authors in the marketplace of ideas? The Internet Archive has filed a notice of appeal in the case it lost over scanning and lending ebooks without publisher's permission. That's right. We'll look to learn more about the contours of that appeal in the coming weeks when briefs get filed. But as expected, as promised, I should say the Internet Archive this week submitted a notice that it has appealed its loss in this closely watched copyright case that, you know, as you say, involves the scanning and digital lending of library books. The notice of appeal comes right at the 30 day deadline. It's been a month to the day that, you know, Judge John G. Codal approved and entered a negotiated consent judgment in which that included a declaration that the Internet Archive scanning and lending of the publisher's copyrighted books was infringement. It also included a permanent injunction that among its provisions bars the Internet Archive from lending unauthorized scans of the plaintiff's in-copyright commercially available books that are notably also available in digital editions. Now, in a statement, the Internet Archive appeared to acknowledge that it is facing an uphill battle here, saying that they are fighting on, and I'll quote them here, in the face of great challenges and that they know this won't be easy. And I think that's right. I think they are facing a great challenge, and I don't think this will be easy because Judge Kotal delivered a pretty emphatic decision against them back in March. A uh, spokesperson for the AAP, meanwhile, said that the publishers will vigorously litigate the appeal. So stay tuned. The next chapter in this closely watched case is about to get going. The Senate Judiciary Committee took testimony this week on the rise in book bans in the nation's libraries and schools. Yeah, um, it was a very disappointing hearing, <laughs> I have to say here. I don't really have a lot of good things to say about this. Now, you can go ahead and watch for yourself. If you go to the Senate Judiciary Committee's website, it's posted right on there, and you can have a look at it yourself. You know, I just have to say it was kind of a clown show. You know, it's a very serious issue, of course, an issue central to our democracy, which we talk about quite a bit on this program. 
But for the purposes of this hearing, it was really treated as political theater and a pretty gross political theater, which I have to say, which, you know, I think was a strategic decision that was made by the conservative side of the aisle in this case. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Now, I did think that there were some good moments. I thought Senator Durbin was quite good in raising the issue. I thought the Democratic witnesses approached the issue with seriousness. That was uh, Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Giannoulias and Illinois Professor Emily Knox, who was my guest at this year's U.S. Book Show. And there was a high school student from Texas. Uh, the witnesses for the GOP side were from the Conservative American Enterprise Institute and the leader of a Virginia-based uh, parents' rights group. Uh, a group that I'll know apparently has ties to the Coke network, but that's not why this was a clown show. The witnesses were fine. Why this was a clown show was that you know it started off with a 25-minute debate about whose fault it was that we don't have an immigration bill, right? And that sort of set the tone and raised everybody's temperatures right from the outset. And the undertone being, you know, why are we talking about this subject when we should be talking about more important matters? So the, the hearing was undermined right out of the gate by this discussion about immigration. But then the Republican witnesses and really the senators on, on the Republican side went for the same strategy that is being employed at the local level here, which is to say that they read really lewd passages from books out of context for pure shock value. And it was, I have to say, a little shocking to hear Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, who I might add literally harangued this student from Texas, to hear him talking graphically about sex, I cannot unhear that. Uh, but what was even more upsetting to me really was that really not one Republican senator really was very well prepared or knew anything at all about how libraries work or about how this issue was unfolding or how book challenges work or anything like that. And I shouldn't be surprised because that's not really what these hearings are really you know all for. This was strictly about messaging. You know, and from the right, we heard the, the message we're hearing in communities across the nation that these liberals are grooming our children and sexualizing our children. And, you know, on the other side, we heard about free speech and the First Amendment. In fact, you know, on the right, we heard a lot of time they, they were disputing the term book ban for much of this hearing because the books could still be bought in bookstores. So it wasn't a terribly informative conversation. I'm going to have a few more highlights about it in my Week in Libraries column, which you can read on Friday. It goes up later this afternoon. Senator Lindsey Graham, I'll note, ginned up a little outrage. He kind of he, he actually self-owned himself a little, but he actually walked out of the hearing. I don't know if he had another appointment or just didn't want to be there anymore. But at one point, he challenged Janulius, sort of raising his voice and pointing his finger uh, about Illinois' bill to discourage book bans and how they were telling conservative parents to shut up. And he harped on the point that no one should tell any parent about what's appropriate for their kids, which Julius pointed out is exactly the point. That's right. You know, on the right, that's what we're seeing, that these, you know, small vocal groups are coming in and getting books taken out of libraries and depriving other families the opportunity to look at these books. But when Julius said that, Graham just kind of exploded at one point, Maisie Hirono asked if there was any evidence that having LGBTQ books on library shelves harmed communities. And when the Democratic witnesses answered no, it elicited a very huge and visible eye roll from the parents' right advocate witness that was there. It was just really something of a political theater. Anyway, I'd say check it out. I'm not really sure that it's really worth your time. It says something about where our politics is at the moment that we can't have like a real on-point discussion about something that should be core to our democracy, right? Freedom to publish, freedom to read. 
and also one that judging by recent decisions in the courts, and we're expecting another decision next week uh, pertaining to this, that's really very much under threat right now. Finally, the National Book Foundation began rolling out its long list for the coveted National Book Awards, though that news was overshadowed by the announcement that Drew Barrymore was uninvited to be the show's host. Tell us why. Yeah, in a word, solidarity, right? You know, the, the news that, you know, the National Book Foundation asked Drew Barrymore to step aside comes after the announcement earlier this week that Barrymore's daytime talk show, the Drew Barrymore Show, was going to begin filming and airing its fourth season this month in spite of the ongoing Writers Guild of America and SAG after strikes. Now, I'm told Barrymore's decision doesn't really cross any picket lines, that her show, like many TV shows like hers, are part of a different union. But the decision, decision to re- resume filming nevertheless resulted in a lot of criticism for writers and actors unions, including the picketing of the show outside CBS Studios earlier this week. And, you know, whatever the politics of that or whatever the union reality, the National Book Foundation, I think, read the room correctly here and made the right call and stood in solidarity with the unions. In a statement, the National Book Foundation said that the National Book Awards is an evening, and I'll quote them here, dedicated to celebrating the power of literature and the incomparable contributions of writers to our culture, and that their commitment is to ensure that the focus of the awards remains on celebrating writers and books. And apparently Barrymore was very understanding of the situation. So we will have a new host for the National Book Award Ceremony, which, by the way, mark your calendars, is set for November 15th. Uh, That host has not yet been named, obviously, but a representative for the foundation said that an update on the hosting situation would be coming soon. So we'll look forward to that in the coming weeks. And again, I think kudos to the National Book Foundation for making what I think is a really good call. Andrew Albanese poses weekly executive editor. Thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, a new generation of research assistants has arrived at universities everywhere. This year's core of research assistants perform their task for professors and deans around the clock, but you won't notice them on campus. They are found only online, the disembodied denizens of generative AI tools like ChatGPT. Professor Mairead Pratchke is Chair in Digital Education at the University of Manchester in the UK. In lectures and conference appearances, Professor Pratchke urges her academic colleagues to recognize the reality that AI has come to stay at school. This is a, is a tricky and, and debatable topic. Uh, right up to today, some people are saying they want to fight it. And, and that we should be fighting it. So I, I'll just start with that caveat. But, but my position on it is that it is everywhere. AI is everywhere. And that we do have to recognize that. And the very first thing that we need to do is work on AI literacy across the board. Uh, so really just kind of make it, make, it, make, it, make it official, recognize it at the campus level by, you know, creating those policies that people are talking about now. Issuing guidance to students and to staff. It's really critical that they know how to use it, when to use it, if they can use it, in what assignments they can use it, what the, what the guidelines state specifically. AI comes to campus, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can always find Velocity of Content on YouTube as well as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.